as we have been in Ephesians chapter 6, remarkable uh, looking back, all the way back in chapter 5, looking at the outworking of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit and wives to their husbands as to the Lord and husbands loving their wives as Jesus loves the church. Looking last week at children obeying their parents because it's right. Looking at parents the responsibility that they have towards their children, looking at slaves and masters, employers and employees. And now Paul is rounding the bend. Uh, He's beginning to, to take this thing in for a landing. That's why the first word in verse 10 is finally. He's got some final thoughts, final exhortations that he wants to share with the Ephesian church. And that by his Holy Spirit, God wants us to understand as well. We're going to take the long way here. I'm going to slow it way down. Because I've got some things on my heart that I think are very important. That I believe God wants us as a church to understand. Uh, If you look at verses 10 through 20 uh, in Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 13 talks about the war. See by the slide here. Verses 14 through 20 talk about the warrior, you and I. In that, we've got to understand the nature of this war before we can do battle. And and I know many of us, especially here at first service, I mean, seasoned saints, been around the church for a long time and all. We're going to look at some really basic things, but we're also going to look at some profound things because it's God's will that we stay sharp on these things. And I want to talk about the, the reason why the, the slide there says worldviews in conflict is because a primary way that Satan is working in our world is by shifting people's worldview away from the Lord, away from the gospel. And so starting out, uh, I, the way I like to teach is, is I, I call it zoom in, zoom out, kind of like a telephoto lens on a camera. Yeah, I love to zoom way in and to do, to take apart words. <laughs> you guys know that. I love word studies. I love, and that's zoom in. That's get in there and get tight on a word and, and just let it speak and, and let the, the meaning come to life, bring the passage to life. But then zooming out way, way out today, uh, we're, we're going to probably touch on verses 10 to 13 at the end of the message. <laughs> it's going to, like I said, we're going to take the long way because there's some really important groundwork I'm going to lay as far as spiritual warfare goes. So the question then, as we look at worldviews, is what is a worldview? And, and simply, your worldview is what you believe to be so. And what you continually use to evaluate the world around you. That's a worldview. Very simple. We all have one. Every person has a worldview. And it's not a world view. It's a worldview. It's one word. And it's an important word. A two-year-old has a worldview. And it looks like mommy, daddy, hungry, and potty. (laughs) A three-year-old, mommy, daddy, toys hungry potty, a four-year-old, mommy, daddy, my toys, hungry potty, and so on. We all have one. It's what shapes us. 
Your worldview governs the way you make decisions about how you live your life. But all worldviews are not equal, especially when we look at it from a perspective of what our worldview is in the body of Christ. Conflicting worldviews cannot both be true. Christianity and non-Christianity, they can't exist in the same space. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's absurd. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable of two very different people with very different worldviews, a tax collector and a Pharisee. And now the tax collector was considered to be the lowest of the low in their culture, and he was the guy that everybody looked down on, Jews and Romans. He was the guy that sold out. (laughs) That's why Matthew was kind of looked at with disdain. He was a Jew, but he was a guy that charged the Jew. He was a puppet of Rome and all of that. So here's a tax collector and then a Pharisee. And it says in Luke 18, we're not going to go into depth into the passage, but it says that Jesus told a parable to those who trusted in themselves. So here's the Pharisee trusting in himself, and he boasts of all of his flawed and, and arrogant spirituality. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other creepy people. Right? Paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. And the tax collector, though, on the other hand, here, here's the, the, this guy who's the picture of religion, full of pride, arrogance. And the tax collector, seeing himself accurately, he can't even look up. And beating his own chest, he throws himself at the mercy of God. Very different worldviews. Very different. And in Luke eighteen fourteen, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the worldview a person has really does matter. Because having the wrong worldview can have terrible terrible um, consequences. So a biblical worldview, now let's sharpen it up a little bit. Let's not talk about in general, but a biblical worldview is about viewing all of life the way God intends us to view it. In the way that God has communicated about life to us through his word, through the Bible. So a biblical worldview can be summarized in a few sentences that simply reflect the core message of the gospel. You don't have to be a scholar, but you do have to pay attention. The first, I'm going to go through a number of these here that that basically spell out and recap the gospel. We all know the gospel, and yet it's important to understand these are core, these are central to our worldview. As Christians, God created the entire universe. Look at the broadest sense, zoom way out. And everyone in it is ultimately accountable to him. As the creator of our world, God knows all things and how life is best to be lived and viewed. The second thing we look at is man is created in God's image and has value as the object of God's love. Do I have value in myself? I'm utterly sinful. And yet I do have value, not because I'm all that and more, but because he is. Because I'm the object of his love. James chapter 3 verse 9 reinforces the Genesis account of man being made in the similitude of God. In other words, in perfect moral harmony with God, in his image. It's a reference to the moral image of God. All of that before the fall. With the fall of man, as a result, we're sinful by nature. 
Consequently, we are separated from God. That's the third thing that we look at here. Our inherent sinfulness adversely affects every area of our lives. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul, quoting the psalm, says this. He says, there's none righteous, not, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And in and of ourselves, that is our condition. The fourth thing we look at is, nevertheless, because of his great love, God in his mercy sent his, his son, Jesus Christ, having come into the world to restore humans to God's image by dying in our place and then being raised from the dead. Central to a Christian worldview. Simple, simple truths, and yet profoundly simple and profoundly important. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, again, the Apostle Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. So as a result of that, the fifth thing we look at is a new relationship is established with God by faith in the finished work of Christ. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's central again to the gospel, central to the salvation message. This new life affects not only a person's choices here and now as we walk in newness of life, but also our eternal destiny. Now, something that's extremely important, and as we begin to focus more on what we're going to be looking at in Ephesians, is Jesus never spoke of the cross and the grave as the end of the gospel, but consistently spoke beyond them. In John chapter 13, Jesus there at the Last Supper, they had been going along, and and we just uh, looked at part of that when we received communion this morning. Jesus has been talking to the guys. He's been giving them, he's been preparing them for the fact that he's going to leave. And then he, in John chapter 13, plainly tells them, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, that was a bombshell statement for those guys. They had been going along. They they didn't ever know what was going to come out of his mouth next. But they were assuming that he was going to set up his kingdom. And, you know, I remember their mom say, hey, you know, can our sons have management positions and all of that? And yet here in the middle of all of this, he says, I'm leaving. And they were stressed out. Now, in John chapter 14, in the first three verses, he says this. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. Mansions is a lousy translation. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We looked on um, Wednesday night, the video, Before the Wrath, and, and we looked at the fact that this is wedding language. He's telling them, as a husband leaves to prepare a place for his bride, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you, and I will receive you to myself. Dropping down in John chapter 14 in verses 28 and 29, we see a key that unlocks why God's word being applied to our lives is so important, why the prophetic word is so important. 
He says, you've heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the father for my father is greater than I. Verse 29 is the key. He says, now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I have told you through my word, by my spirit, that when I've told you ahead of time, so that when it comes about, that you would identify that that's something that confirms that I am who I am, and I'm doing, I've done what I've done. He says that that prophetic word will confirm the message. And that's true for us. The last thing we look at here is a balanced biblical worldview must include the return of Christ as the ultimate hope for every believer. It matters because it's the lens through which we see our world. Is there a lot going on out there? Oh my goodness. You don't need me to tell you that. Do we have hope? Yeah. At the end of the day, when I lay my head down on my pillow and tell my wife, good night, do I sleep well? Yeah, I do. Not because I am uncaring, but because I know where my hope lies. Because everything that he has told us would come to pass has. And therefore, I understand that what lies ahead will come to pass equally. Uh, I don't have to be caught up in this stuff. This is here for a moment and then it's gone. That's what the word of God tells us. This life is a vapor. So our worldview is an invisible but very real filter that we use to understand why things are the way that they are. Did Jesus say that there would be really stressful times towards the end of the age? You bet he did. But he said, don't be afraid. Don't be stressed out. In the same way he told his guys then, don't be stressed out, guys. This is all part of the plan. I draw such great comfort from that. Understanding our own worldview is critically important. Also, understanding the worldview of people around us helps us to build a bridge to understanding them and what's going on in their lives. That's why so often I I, I tell you guys, don't try to clean the fish before you catch them. Uh, I heard this week of someone that that just landed hard on, on some of their relatives that we're living together with, with somebody and they're unbelievers. That's just, they're just being faithful to their nature. And I'm not making an excuse for sin. What I'm saying though is that to go and to put that head trip on somebody when you know that they are operating from a completely different worldview, it will not make sense. You will cause hostility and anger and hatred and all of that when what you need to do is to understand, look, Yes, sin is sin, but you reach them by coming to them with an understanding of their worldview to try to explain what yours is, that the gospel is all important. Again, it's never making excuses for sin, but it is being sensitive to what's happening. In Acts 17, we have an example from God's word of the apostle Paul building a bridge between a pagan worldview and a Christian worldview to the Greeks in Athens. If you remember the story, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit on the front end in Acts 17. Uh, Paul is there in Athens. He goes up onto Mars Hill. Uh, There's a place at the top of the hill called the Areopagus. And that's where the Stoics and the philosophers, the guys that 
that the thinkers, it's where they were. On his way up Mars Hill, he sees a statue. It's a Greek statue, and it says to the unknown God. And so he, he's thinking, he's thinking, how can I reach these guys? He didn't go up there and just blast them because they were a bunch of fools and idiots because they worshiped these pagan stone deities. He did go up there with the intent of winning them for Christ. And he says in verse 24 of Acts 17, God who made the world and everything in it, he's talking to these guys now, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Paul is conveying his worldview. He's using their statue to do it. He's saying, let me tell you about that unknown God. He knew the Greeks worshiped a pantheon of gods and his God was bigger than any temple that man could build. He also states that God is uncreated, but is creator. He's saying, look, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He doesn't need anything from us. In verse 26, he says that he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, he has laid it all out so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, alluding to the omnipresence of God. He's telling them there's only one God who created us all and to whom we are all obligated since God is the author of life, that we should seek him. Verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So Paul here, now, again, building a bridge, he quotes two of their well-known poets, Greek poets from the ancient world, a guy by the name of Epimenides, Epimenides, and Aratus. Oh, that's a long word. Uh, because their words, not because they were all that, but their words in their poetry conveyed a biblical truth. When he says that in him we live and move and have our being. I love that passage. And we're also his offspring. That was, that was Aratus, this other poet. So he uses their poets to build a bridge. In the same way that, that we use things in our lives to convey spiritual truths to people who are unbelieving. In verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Now he's getting right to them because that's what they had. They represented their gods through these beautiful works of art. You've seen the marble statues and all of that, the paintings, Venus rising, the, all the stuff that came out of those eras. Venus Rising was much later. But the point is, is he's saying it's not about art. It's not about having this stone idol. He's say, saying, truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So here is where Paul tells them God is not an object and their worldview is insufficient. He's saying you've got it wrong. You've been ignorant and God is, he has, he's allowed for your ignorance, but now these, these, he's overlooked those, but now he's commanding everyone to, every man everywhere to repent. In other words, they need to change the way they understand God. Why? 
Verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's referring to Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul now says, look, your worldview doesn't make it. It doesn't cut it. And he's told them why. He's saying, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to to recalculate here and, and understand that the God that is, is way different from the gods that you have represented here. And the reason is, is that God will judge what you believe. And he speaks prophetically of what lies ahead, judgment for believers. And again, we look at the full counsel of God's word for believers. It will be the Bema seat. It will be that place where we go that we actually receive rewards for the things that we've done in the body. We talked about that last week. Why would he do that? Because he's so gracious with us that will receive that, that wreath, that, that crown of righteousness. For unbelievers, for those who refuse to believe, who refuse to allow their worldview to come into line with God's word, the great white throne of judgment awaits. God will judge in righteousness. I want you to understand that while the word worldview is not in the Bible, the concept of it seeps through all of the scripture. Is it important what you believe? Yeah, it's critically important. You will always, and I'll tell you what, folks, uh, basic understanding, you will always act on what you believe. Always, 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 always. We always act on what we believe. If we don't believe that the things in God's word are so, we're going to be subject to the whims of the world. One of the areas that Satan has attacked the church is he's trying to fill, to to water down the message. Uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit next week as we look specifically at the warrior and at the powers of darkness that are working to prevail upon the church. But understand, as we connect world events to the word of God, we don't want to look through the wrong end of the telescope. I love that word picture. It's like, try to look through the the, the big end. It's not going to make sense. We want to look at world events through scripture rather than look at scripture through world events. That's not the right way to do it. Many do that. And, And they end up stretching God's word to fit world events and it becomes a fool's errand at the end of the day. It's not the proper way to interpret the direction that we're going is absolutely scripture first. I shared with you last week that while we were on our trip that I, I, I just felt burdened to do a little bit more work connecting world events to what God's word has to say. That doesn't mean that I'm going to look at the world event and then try to figure it out. That means that, and you'll see this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 12, as we look at God's word, we have greater understanding of what's going on around us. That's the point. That's the right way to go. That's looking through the telescope through the right end. Through Revelation 12 and many other passages, it's plain for a student of the word to see the world through the lens of scripture. That's the point because it colors our worldview because it influences the way that we look at life. It influences the way that we interpret things that are going on around us. 
critical to not have a balanced biblical worldview is to be subject to the enemy's wiles. I don't think I would be able to cut it in a church that didn't teach God's word because that's what I want. That's the food. That's the diet that I need to be on. It's about shaping the biblical worldview through the word of God, historically and prophetically, and to see the events around us in the light of the scripture. As we begin now to explore Ephesians 6 with regard to spiritual warfare, great insight about our common enemy is found in Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and talk about verse 5 a little bit. In that passage, and you're welcome to turn there if you'd like, we're going to look at just the first few verses. Up until then, there's been kind of a chronology. Uh, There's been a sequence going through time at the end of the age, looking at end times, looking at the wrath of God being poured out, looking at uh, the tribulation and the great tribulation. But here, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, pauses that timeline, that chronological timeline, and he basically, he visits many different eras, many different times. And so it's important that we understand that going in, because if we don't, we can get really confused and tripped up by this, by trying to make it fit what's been going on before this point in this book. He spans past, present, and future in just these few verses. He says in verse 1 of Revelation 12, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So the first question that we have here, folks, is who's the woman? Now, many claim that it's the Virgin Mary. I want to remind you that John says there are three places here in in Revelation that he talks about a sign. Two of them are right here that we're going to look at this morning. This is a sign. This is not a literal thing that's unfolding. He's talking about a sign. He's talking about symbolism here. So who does a woman symbolically represent? I don't believe it's the Virgin Mary. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Uh, there, I don't know if you have ever looked at Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy, the one that founded Christian science, said this woman was her. And the child was Christian science. I mean, that's a stretch. But as we know that Scripture interprets Scripture, a very safe way to see what does something mean is to look in God's Word to see if there are any parallel passages. And here in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11, I'm not going to read them, but we see an account of Joseph's dream. Remember, he's down in Egypt, and he has a dream. And he has the sun and the moon and 11 stars. We'll talk about that. The sun, as we know from his dream, represents his father, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the father of the nation. The moon represented his mother, Rachel. The 11 stars were the sons of Israel, which bowed down to Joseph. Now, in this sign, we see 12 stars because Joseph is now among the other tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. The point in all of this is the woman here is clearly Israel, okay? I could go on, and and I'm leaving a lot of interpretation out just because I want to chase down a couple of points here in this. I mean, this is some wonderful scripture. I, I would love to... 
expound on it, but we really don't have time this morning. Then verse 2, it says, Then being with child, so the woman is pregnant, uh, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So the second question here is, who is the child? In verse 5 of Revelation chapter 12, John tells us the child born of Israel is Jesus. He, he says, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And we know that to be the Lord Jesus himself. So here's the woman, Israel, and, and through her comes this son, this child, Messiah, Jesus. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Who then is the dragon? Chapter 12 in verse 9 of this chapter tells us that the ser- that it is the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So we have Israel, Messiah, and Satan being represented here in this prophecy. He says that this is a sign. Uh, in, in verse 3, he says another sign. So it's pretty important that we understand that Satan is not literally a dragon. This is symbolism. All right? Now, there's a guy by the name of Dennis Johnson, not the basketball player from back when, but uh, a theologian. He wrote a, a great uh, book on the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb. And he says this, he says, John's, and I liked the way he put this, John's description symbolically suggests his fierce power and murderous nature, a picture of the fullness of evil in all its hideous strength. That's the dragon. That's Satan. That's how he is presented in this passage. Verse 4, the first part of verse 4, it says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth talking about a third of the angelic host being cast to the earth with Satan. Lucifer. The word Lucifer literally means light bringer. We know that he was the most magnificent creature in all of the heavenly host. Probably the worship leader in heaven. There's a passage in Ezekiel. Again, I'd love to take the time, but we're not going to. That talks about his timbrel and and his musical instruments cast down. He launched a rebellion against God. A third of the stars, a biblical term that refers to angels, were cast out of heaven with him. In Isaiah chapter 14, we read this uh, in verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. That's Satan. That's his rebellion. That's the dragon. That's referred to here in Revelation 12. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's the second half of of verse 4 here. So I want you to understand something. He's talking about Satan's attempt to annihilate the child. Understand that his attempt to annihilate Israel from whom came Messiah and from whom he will come again 
is and has been from Eden forward the overarching and overarching theme in both biblical and secular history. We see it. We see it in the news all the time. We understand that that tiny little nation is subject to all kinds of stuff. This understanding must be incorporated into our worldview as believers. We've got to understand Satan hates Israel as he hates Messiah. Whether through Cain or Pharaoh or Haman or Herod or Hitler, Satan has been relentless in his attempts to destroy the woman and her child. And he still is. Do you see how looking through the right end of the telescope, this begins to influence the way that we look at things that are going on around us? It's not just Israel. It's the church as well. The only explanation as to why have the Jews been perpetually persecuted must be the one we see here in Revelation 12. The dragon is determined to devour the child of the woman. If there's no Jerusalem, if there's no Israel, if there's no Jewish people, how could Jesus fulfill the prophecies of his return to rule and reign over his people in Jerusalem? Consequently, the plan of the dragon is to keep Messiah from returning to Israel by annihilating the Jews. Why do you think you see that, again, that tiny little nation is always on the hot seat? Why, she has, is surrounded by people who want her utterly annihilated. They don't want peace. They want the destruction of Israel. If you don't grasp this truth, you'll never have a satisfactory answer for the mystery of anti-Semitism. Very important in our worldview as believers to understand that he's not only against Israel, he's not only against the child and the woman, he's against the church. In verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. It says here that she bore a male child, that refers to Jesus' first coming, his incarnation. The second half of this verse, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, that's a reference to his triumphant second coming when he returns to the earth. Here, John alludes to all that stands in between, in between the first coming and the second coming. And that's where we are located in our study in Ephesians. It's also where we, the church, stand today between the two. I mentioned last week, You've got to see world events. You've got to see history, biblical history, secular history. You've got to see it as part of what God is doing on the earth. That you look back, you see that what God has already done. You look forward, you see what he has promised to do. And you see that we stand right here, right now. As I mentioned, verses 10 through 13, talk about the war. Verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not, listen, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what we've been looking at in Revelation chapter 12. That's what we're looking at here in Ephesians. He says, therefore, therefore, because of these things, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's a preview for next week (laughs) because we're not going to go there today. I will look at these in depth 
next week at this passage. As we close, I want to, I'm reminded of, of one principle that is critically important that we understand, and it needs to be a working part of our worldview as Christians. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, uh, giving great encouragement on life in the Spirit, begins to wrap up chapter 8. He says this in verse 35 uh, through 39. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And in all these things, listen, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor uh, powers, nor things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Folks, we don't operate towards victory in this war. We operate from it. The war is won. Yes. Are there battles? You bet there are. And and we're going to look at what it means to be prepared for the battle when it comes, because it will land, if it's not already, it will land on your doorstep. It will come to you. Satan, he's going about as as a, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Part of how he does that is by distorting our understanding. We'll look at next week, we'll look at what happens when we have a low view, of Satan and his work? And what happens when we have kind of a hyper view? Both come into play and and we need to be balanced in this. The reason is Satan's finest hour when he got Messiah on the cross became his darkest. By contrast, Jesus' darkest hour became his finest at the cross of Calvary because Jesus triumphed over Satan at the cross we can have great confidence. Again, we don't operate towards victory. We operate from victory. Great difference. So what does your worldview look like? Is it impacted? Is it dominated by some form of the new spirituality that's sweeping through the church? I look out, folks, and I'm sickened at the things that are supplanting sound doctrine. I was reading, and we'll talk about it a bit next week. I was reading in, on Barna Research. You're familiar with them. It's, it's a, a organization that, that compiles statistics about where people are at in, in matters of faith and practice. And the amount of false doctrine that has been brought into the church that is being adopted by people is remarkable. Because if Satan can distort your worldview, he's got you. If he can distort what you believe to be true and how you relate to the world around you and how you relate to God's word, he's got you. I felt it was very important to talk about worldviews in conflict this morning because that means everything. What you believe, what you truly hold at, at, at the core of who you are and how you interpret life means everything. Understand that as we reach out, that we're reaching into a culture that has a different worldview and that it's not about beating people up. It's about giving them the love of Christ. 
It's about understanding that, yeah, they may be being faithful to their nature. Again, never making an excuse for sin. Jesus with the woman caught in adultery is such a wonderful example. He thrust her down there. She's caught in adultery. Then the very act. He starts writing on the ground. And then as these guys all, beginning with the oldest first, drop their rocks, which they were ready to stone her with, and walk away, he turns to the woman they're thinking this was her last few moments. He says, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. He says this. He says, neither do I condemn you. He never made an excuse for her sin, but he knew she was already condemned. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your sinful lifestyle. Change the way you're looking at things. Change your life. Understand you need to repent, which means to change your mind about the things of God. As we reach into other people's lives to bring the gospel of Christ to them, it is so important that we understand we're not there to validate people's lifestyles, but we have to understand. We have to operate from the understanding that they are already condemned. The thing that will commit someone's soul to hell is not clean up your act. It's come to Jesus. And to fail to do that is by default to sell your soul to the devil. This is a great war. We look out, we see that it's intensifying around us. So what's impacting your worldview? Some spirituality that people are peddling out there, calling it Christianity? Is it secularism? Is it humanism? Postmodern thought where there's no room even for objective truth? What about politics? There are times I want to throw a shoe at my television like I saw some Lebanese guy do recently. I'll tell you what, I get, it, there, I get twisted up about it. And, and, and Stacey will tell you, I, I have a five-minute tolerance even for Fox News. And I, I just turn it. I say, okay, <laughs> that's it. I'm done. Because I don't want that to supplant this. I love having a life of relative peace. Am I affected by that? Yeah, of course I am. So are you. But I don't need for it to crowd the Lord Jesus out in my heart, in my life. Be committed to maintaining the purity of God's word in your life. Be committed to the the diligent study of this beautiful, masterful communication of God to us. Let it inform your thinking. Let it shape the way you relate to life around you. Let it motivate you to love and good works. Let the Spirit of God have his way in your heart, in your life. Let him shape your worldview and then hone it. That's his will for us, the church. It's his will for these people back then. It's his will for us today. It will be his will going into the future because he doesn't change. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for this, just this wonderful passage. Lord, as we look at at the powers of darkness and we look at these things in uh, the weeks to come, Lord, I pray that we would have a balanced view. Uh, I'm reminded, Lord, of the evangelist Billy Sunday in the, the 19th century when Satan came in. He just said, oh, it's you again, because he knew where the victory lie. Lord, let us be people who operate from victory. 
that we operate in this battle, in this war, knowing that you have already triumphed at the cross. Thank you, God. Thank you for your divinely inspired word. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We pray, Father, that as we go out of this place, that you would bring to our remembrance things that you'd have us to to, to focus on, the things that you would have us to be looking at in our own hearts, and our own lives. And if corrections are needed, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do the work, that we would simply be yielded to you. We thank you for your...